Well, good morning. Well, for those of you guys who do not know me, um, my name is Philip, and um, I will be stepping in here for the next uh, couple of months as Cliff takes a sabbatical. Um, and, I, and I'm just going to be clear with everyone here, I am thankful to be here. Um, I, I take it, uh, this, this position of both preaching and just leading, um, I take it with a lot of reverence, with a lot of uh, humility. Um, it's a, uh, take it very seriously. Um, the, 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 the Word of God is something that I take very, very seriously. And, uh, and so, uh, but I'm just thankful to be here with you guys and to be able to, uh, to, be able to share, to lead, to teach. Uh, in any capacity. And, and just to be clear, I just want to make sure this is clear so um, that we all know that my, what my role here is for the next three months or so, um, it is in part to preach, but it's also in part just to fill in that space where Cliff is at uh, and just leading and shepherding and visioning. Um, and so if you guys have questions, concerns, complaints, um, you want to talk about all the problems, I'm just going to tell you to go to Chad and not to me. <laughs> But if you, if you want to talk to me about how great things are, then that, 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 I'm the person to talk to you about that, just to talk about how wonderful I'm doing and <laughs> everything else. Uh, but I will, I will say this. I know, we, I know Chad just prayed, but I'll be honest. Um, I never like to preach without praying. So if you guys would just join me specifically, that is lead us um, as we just prepare our hearts and our mind for what God has for us. Father, I just thank you, God, for uh, this time that you brought us here. Oh God, I just ask that in this moment right now, um, you would still every heart, you would still every mind, that we might be rushing and thinking, that we might be dealing with something emotional, maybe a pain, maybe a loss, maybe we're just burdened with stress and uncertainty. But God, I ask that in this moment right now, your voice speaks to each one of us. That we might just be present with you. And Father, I ask that you interrupt any agenda I have that is not yours. Father, I pray that you interrupt any plan that I have, any thought I have, any word that I have that is not yours. So God, that your word might be spoken. I pray for peace over the next few months, both for Cliff and also for this congregation. I pray for guidance for me, and I pray for an open heart and an open, an open ear for all of us. And let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be holy and pleasing to you, Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So um, you guys know those people who tend to come with compliments only when they want something. Only when they have some kind of an agenda in their mind, they want to come to you and they want to tell you and they want to fluff you up and talk about how great you are, how nice you are, simply because uh, you have something to contribute or something to offer to them at that moment. Or maybe they want you to do something. Maybe some of you guys are looking at your spouse, your left or your right, and you're thinking, yeah, I know exactly who I'm thinking about right now. Uh, my brother, when I was growing up, uh, I was really young, right? So I grew up on a ranch, uh, we had horse crowds everywhere, you know, about 15 horses. It was on a hill, so we had to go up and clean up the horse manure, and it was this terrible job. We had to go up and down this hill, terrible, terrible job. 
And my mom would come in and would ask, hey, uh, somebody's got to go out and do the horse corrals, clean the horse corrals. And my brother, who was older, much older than I was, uh, obviously much wiser than I was, uh, would, would find a way to compliment me, <laughs> to manipulate me. He would say, oh, you know, you're so much better at cleaning corrals than I am. <laughs> you're so much faster. You're just way more efficient. I leave a mess. And so then I would get it in my little immature mind, like, oh, man, I am better. <laughs> Let me show him how much better I am. I'll go do the corrals every time. Right, to, get, to, to show him how good I am. But, but, but here's the thing, right? Um, I eventually learned that that was manipulation. And then all those nice words just seemed like manipulation to me. And so here, here's the thing. Compliments with an agenda aren't really compliments, are they? Compliments with an agenda aren't really compliments. Right? They, there's this deeper thing that you're really going after, and you're just using something as a means. You're just using kind words as a means to an end. And along the same line, I want to introduce this thought to us this morning that, that when we seek God with an agenda, we aren't really seeking God. We aren't really longing for God. We aren't really wanting God. When we, want, when we come to God simply because we see it as a means to something else, we are not actually seeking God himself. If you're going to God, if you, if you just, many of us make a habit of doing this. Our prayers are deepest. Our hearts are most eager for divine action simply when we are most broken and longing for something to change in our life. And be aware of that, that, that there, there might be a way in which you are going to God to get something from God and not to get God himself. Right? So when you go to God with an agenda, you're not really looking for God, you're looking for the thing you can get from God. And so I want to ask us something this morning, a, a type of question that I would say, think deeply about. Why are you here this morning? Why are you really here this morning? Um, churches exist to be a community that seeks after the heart of God, that seeks after the presence of God, that seeks after the action of God. It's a community that is seeking God. And it's a community that's inviting others to come and to seek after God as well. Right? That is the whole function and the purpose of the church. But sometimes we make a slip. And we show up to church for something else. We'd be a part of the community for some other reason. Maybe we're lonely. Maybe we're here because there's something we get to do that that's fun to do. Maybe we're here for the free donuts. Or coffee. Or whatever. But what is it that you're really seeking after this morning? Is it him? Are you coming to God for God? Or are you coming to him as a means to an end? Because there's something you, you, you long for from him, or maybe something you long for from this community, and it isn't God. And it kind of breaks into a larger question as you think about your life as a whole. What do you really want in life? What do you really want in life? Think real introspectively, real deep. Do you seek to know God? Do you ex- seek to experience Him? To be near to Him in your day to day? I'll be honest, if all we did this morning was really wrestle with that question, and we just think deeply about our, what we do on a day to day, we wake up and have our cup of coffee and do whatever, and you just think about your routine Monday through Friday. Saturday and Sunday, you just think about those routines and you would really ask, man, in that moment, what am I really looking for in life? 
What am I really trying to do? What am I really trying to accomplish? If we could just wrestle with that question today, I would say it's a huge success for this morning. But I want to be very honest. This isn't a question I want us to take apathetically. Right, apathetically means that you, you, don't, you don't really have like an investment in it. It's just kind of an indifference to you. If it goes one way or another. I could ask you if you wanted another cup of coffee. And you could think, well, and I've had one. I might as well add another. That's kind of an apathetic response. It's kind of like, eh, either way. Kind of an indifference to it. This is not a question you think, what do you really want in life? This isn't a question to ask apathetically. It's not a question to just kind of think, eh, either way. It's good. I worship one God. Might as well worship another. I worship one thing, I might as well worship another. There's this video I saw a few months back, maybe even a year back, something like that, kind of trended for a little while. And it's somebody is talking about life. And this person is talking about life um, and just kind of breaking down, um, you know, the different stages of life and how we go through it. But he's presenting it in a comical way as if it's like a game review. And that life is like a video game, and we're just kind of choosing to play, um, play through the, the different um, sections of our life. And he just talks about it in a comical way that, you know, most gamers uh, could get into. Like, oh, you know, your first 24 years, all you do is just level up by going to school, right? And it's just like this kind of comical, simple way of thinking about life. And he, and he introduces a number of things that's really funny. But at the very end, he says something. Um, he says, um, you know, okay, in the end, uh, you die. Your character dies, and then that's it. Now, some people believe in religion. Some people believe in, 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 in that there's a God and that there's actually a whole other stage to life. There's a whole other level that you have to go through. But some people don't. But either way, whether, whether you believe that or not, don't take it too seriously. And, and I think about that, and I'm like, man, don't take it too seriously. It's just kind of sending out this simple idea of just don't take religion too seriously. Don't take the idea of God too seriously. Don't, don't dwell on it too much. It's not that big of a question to wrestle with. And there's this branch within philosophy known as existentialism. It's a really fancy word, but it's very simple. Just think it's existence. It's a study of existence. And so it asks a series of questions about uh, why are we here? What's our purpose? Is there meaning? Is there any kind of a hope to life? Right? Like, like, what's the nature of our existence? Why are we here? And the most important question you can ask, and it's sad that many philosophers don't really spend enough time on this question, but the most important question you can ask in this investigation, this study of existentialism, is, is there a God? And what's the nature of that God? Because think, think about it. Whether you get this idea of God right is going to determine everything about everything else you could believe about our existence. Is there a purpose? Well, whether you believe in God, that radically changes that answer. What do you believe about the nature of ethics? What do you believe about the nature of our eternity and where we go? Everything we believe about life is shaped by this fundamental question. What, what do you believe about who God is? And I want you to get this idea that if you get God wrong, you get life wrong. You could spend your entire life in vain because you have the wrong idea of God. Think about it if you know if you were an atheist. Right? If you're an atheist and you're chasing this idea of God that it doesn't exist, that it's a fairy tale, but if he's in fact is real, if Christianity is true, you've spent your life on basic fundamentals that are completely false. And everything you did in life is in vain. And likewise, if you're a Christian and yet God doesn't exist, now you've wasted your life in this faith that isn't true. 
if you get God wrong, you get life wrong. And so I think about this idea of just don't take it too seriously. It's terrible advice. It's absolutely terrible advice. I was at a party um, a couple years a couple years back. I guess it was a couple years back. Um, and it, it, there was a mixture of family and friends that were there. Uh, and, and I remember I was just sitting in a circle with a group of guys, and one of the guys had just broken up with a girl. And he was, and he was, and so somebody asked him, hey, so, so why did you break up with her? And this guy is a so-called Christian. He said, well, you know, she was just too religious. She just took everything in her faith way too seriously. And then someone like to the left of me is like, oh my gosh, you got to be careful with those religious nuts. And I'm like, okay, this is seriously awkward. Because <laughs> I'm like a pastor. I'm like as religious as you get. I'm as big of a religious nut as you can get. But there's, this, there's something kind of pathetic about that answer. There's something kind of simple-minded about that, that response. So I broke up with her because she was too religious. What he's really looking for is a hypocrite. Right? He's looking to date a hypocrite. He's, look, he's looking to date for somebody who says, oh, I believe in X, Y, and Z. Because he, he's a Christian, believably, or so, you know, allegedly a Christian. And so he's looking for somebody who can well, at least say the same thing, but I just don't want her actually doing anything because of it. I don't want her living in any kind of a way differently because of it. I just want her to say that she's a Christian, and that's the end of it. Right? You once a date a hypocrite. An apathetic belief in God. A belief in God that isn't really rude in anything. That isn't directed with conviction and fire. And that isn't causing you to live in any kind of a different way. An apathetic belief in God is a vain thing. It's completely and entirely vain. Believing in God but doing nothing about it. By not having your life, by not living your life differently because of it, is pointless and honestly quite dangerous. An apathetic belief in God is a vain thing. If you come to God, and I want to bridge this thought for us that if you come to God, only once you need something from God, you're pretty apathetic about God Himself. That's a dangerous place to be. That if you find yourself only coming to God simply when you need something, that's, that's when you pray. That I'm only interested in figuring out how do I get things from God. If that is your interest, that's a dangerous place to be because you are, quite honestly, apathetic towards God himself. You're interested in what he can give you, but you're not interested in, in who he is. Go to God to get God. I consider this like an, like an axiom to faith, like a rule, a principle to live by. Go to God to get God. Not just what he offers, not just what he can do. Go to God to get God. Um, we're, we're starting this, this series, and we're going to be going through it the entire time that I will be with you guys for the next three months. And I know some of you are thinking, but what about Christmas? I'm sorry. <laughs> so we, we have, I have an agenda here. I'll be honest with you guys. I have an agenda here. that There, there is a word that I want to share uh, with the Bridges as a community. Uh, and so I have that agenda. But, but, but it, it, the series is called Unshakable Faith. Unshaking Faith. Unshakable Faith. And we're going to be walking through the books uh, of various chapters of the Psalms, just uh, figuring out how do we relentlessly pursue the person and the character of God. How do we have a relentlessly committed faith? Um, here, here's the thing. Um, biblically, faith isn't just something you believe, it's something you do. Now, if you were to look up faith in a dictionary, you're going to see that it says something about a belief. 
And you're even going to find references in scriptures that it talks about faith as simply a belief. But the kind of a faith that God calls us to is the belief that leads to, is expressed by, and is lived out by action. So faith is expressed by our desire to trust and to see God. So, so then put this definition together, an unshakable faith then is when we are relentless in our pursuit to trust and seek God with everything we are and everything we do. That we are relentless to, 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 um, in our pursuit to trust and seek God with everything we are and everything we do. Which is exactly why I want us to be reading through the Psalms. If you read through the Psalms, you, you see uh, reoccurring stories. Of, of, of the psalmist, of the writers, experiencing pain, experiencing tragedy, experiencing a void of the presence of God, experiencing silence from the voice of God, experiencing all kinds of things. You also see uh, the writers experiencing huge joy, great victory. Everything's going great. The Psalms are written in the lows of life and in the highs of life and even as kind of the mediocre stages of life. But throughout the Psalms, there is this reoccurring theme. I want you, God. I always and only want you, God. That's the the heart of, of the Psalms. There are prayers, there are praises that are focused on and focused on seeking God. It is there, there, there are profound expressions of a desire for God. Because the Psalms get this idea, one that I want us to understand over the next 12 weeks, that solutions that are not God's solutions are never good solutions. Right? And so sometimes we, we come to God with our solution in our head. We're, we're looking for something that we want God to do. And we have, our, we have this problem, we have this crisis, we have a pain in our life, and so we're thinking, well, what I need, God, is more money. <laughs> What I need is some kind of a miracle to fix this problem. What I need is a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or whatever. And so we have this clear idea of what our solution is, but the thing that the Psalms present to us is that it doesn't matter what solution we can come up with. If it isn't God's solution to our problem, it is never going to be a good solution. And so that's why the heart of the Psalms are so focused on, I want your actions. I want your presence. I want your plan. I want your intention. I want your vision for my life and nothing else. Because any other solution, plan, actions I can come up with, I can scheme up with, or anything can come up up with or scheme up is going to be a bad solution. Solution that is not God's solution is not a good solution. So the Psalms ask for God's presence. The Psalm asks, for God's action, for his plan, for his timing, for his discipline, for his grace and his mercy. They are essentially, psalms are essentially prayers and worship that seek God's presence and action. Regardless of what that means. Regardless of the trial that that might bring. That's an unshaking faith. That's an unshaking faith. They are pictures. The Psalms are prayers and worships that are pictures of an unshaking faith. And I think God gives us these these examples, these prayers, so that we might learn from them and that we might grow from them and that we might 
model them. That these become testimonies to us of how to pray ourselves. Of how to worship ourselves. And not worship ourselves, but how to worship. <laughs> the purpose of this series is simple. I want us to grow in our longing for God. To grow in our pursuit of God. And all the trials that life brings. Um, so what we're going to be doing in this series is that we're going to be uh, picking out one primary psalm each Sunday. And we're going to be looking at it. So the thing is, is there's about 150 psalms. I'm really focusing on the first 75 or so. And we're not going to go through all 75. As you read the psalms, you, you're going to learn something. You're going to recognize that there's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of similar themes. Right? And actually, people have kind of clumped them together and said, oh, you can look at these 20s list of 20 psalms, and you're actually going to find you know, identical verses in all of them. Right, Because there, there are these prayers that are oftentimes, there might be different circumstances, but they're similar circumstances. And so the, prayer, the, the thing that they ask for is very similar. And so what I'm doing is what I pulled out is what about 11 or 12, I think, themes that we see in at least the first 75 psalms to what we could learn and understand and grasp and that we can grow and be molded and model these prayers so that our spiritual journey, our spiritual pursuit might look like like what the words of the this, this psalms are. And so there's one particular psalm that we're going to be starting off with that just kind of fits with this theme, this question that I want us to be stirring in our hearts is what is it that we really want? And we're going to be looking at Psalm 73. It's a psalm that expresses a deep hunger for God, a deep longing for God. But it does it in a very meaningful and in a very honest way. And it asks some questions. It even raises some doubts. Questions and doubts I want us to wrestle with today. And before we get into it, you could go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you have them to Psalm 73. If not, it's going to be on the screen behind me. Um, but before we, we read it, I want you to understand that this psalm, like many psalms, is telling a story. It's following along a story of someone's life. How someone looked around and they noticed something. They noticed that the godless that those who did not worship God seem to have a simple life. And there's this place in which he even envies their life. He looks and he wonders, is my faith in vain? Have I had, do I have the wrong view of God? Have I been chasing the wrong view of God? Is my faith in vain? I hope we can relate to that. I hope we've wrestled with that honest and hard question at seasons in our life. Um, but, but he comes to, to recognize something deep and something profound along the way. And I want us to follow along that journey and see what he discovers. But go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 73. Um, I do something um, that's a little different, especially with, with the Psalms, that I often bounce uh, between translations. So I might be reading one translation this week, and the next week it might be different. I'm sorry. <laughs> For those of you guys who are like, OCD, it has to be the same translation every Sunday, or you're going to throw a fit. Um, but I primarily bounce between NLT and ESV. And I'll just tell you, you know, NLT is a very simple, it's easy to read. Um, ESV, I, I find that's, that is the book, that's the only, the only translation I will study in. I'm going to really dig at the meat of it, I'm going to read ESV, but sometimes I'll just initially read NLT, New Living Translation. Um, so I'm going to be reading today in, in NLT, and then there's, a, there's one verse I want to look at that's in ESV. Um, but starting off verse 1, hear the word of God. Truly God is good to Israel, 
to those whose hearts are pure. It just starts with this recognition of God's goodness. But as for me, right? Like God is good to Israel, but for me it's different. Anyone relate to that? God's good to some people, but to me, I don't know. But as for me, I am almost, I've almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud. And when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness, they seemed to live such a painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have trouble like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens, and their words strut through the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I want to pause there. I want you to recognize that this is very honest reflection. Was my faith all in vain? What has it been worth? What has it been worth? There are people who are deep Christians, deep convictions, deep faith in Jesus that are struggling, that are experiencing loss, starving, persecuted, sometimes for their faith, sometimes for nothing. And so there's this question, right? Doesn't being the son or daughter of God mean something? Shouldn't it? Shouldn't my life just be evident that I have the favor of God? Shouldn't it be that way? And that's the question that the, 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 the psalmist, that the writer of the psalm is wrestling with. It's my faith in vain. Why bother being obedient? Why bother being faithful? What is it worth? The wicked are healthy, they're rich, they're happy, it seems. It's an honest question for the faithful might ask. Continuing on, 14, 14 through 16, it says, I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. Right? There's even this confession, can I even be honest? Can I stand in front of the community of God's people and say, yeah, my life sucks. <laughs> I don't think God, I don't think God is, 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 is favoring me in any way. That's where the heart of what he's saying. I, I've been a traitor. I would be a traitor to my people if I would have spoke honestly. So I tried to understand why do the wicked prosper. But that was a difficult task. Now, I'm going to say more about this uh, shortly when we, when we finish reading it. But I want to commend this way of thinking. The author is, is expressing doubt. What's the point of my faith? What's the point of my faith, really? What is it, what is it worth? 
But what, what, notice what he says here. Unlike so many today, he doesn't just throw up his, his hands and say, well, that's it. I've asked the question. I could, since I can ask the question, is my faith in vain, then obviously my faith is in vain. Right? He, he's not just giving up because he's reached this place of doubt because he has this question that he doesn't understand. He, in fact, actually says, I try to understand why they're prospering. He says, it's a difficult task. I don't get it. It's hard to comprehend. But he doesn't just throw up his hands and say, oh, it's over. I reject it. I reject Jesus. I reject God. I reject it all just because I have a question I can't answer. Right? There's something that the way he approaches doubt is very different than the way many approach doubt today. Rather, he implies himself to a deeper level of investigation. Right? Doubt can be a very powerful thing to the, to the believer, to the Christian. It can be a very powerful thing because that doubt can become a fuel to the flame of investigation. It can pursue us to a deeper knowledge it can shake up our life and shape up our intellect in such a way that gets us out of complacency and into a place in which we start asking questions we might never have asked before. It's very powerful. As long as we ask the questions and we don't give up and run. It's exactly what we see here that he's doing. He, he, he pursues this investigation further. Picking up on verse 17, he says, Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood Right? It took me to the presence of God for me to understand this. That the destiny of the wicked, truly, you put them on a slippery path. And you send them sliding over the cliff of destruction. In an instant, they are destroyed. Completely swept away by terrors. I want to expand on this shortly. But then he says, when you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas. You will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. The wicked have an ambition, a view of reality. And at the moment God arises, it will be laughable. So at this point, the author realizes something. The author realizes, he has realized the vanity of their life. I'm going to get to this shortly, but that's the, that's, the, that's the epiphany he's come to. There's something vain about their life. And at this point, he concludes, I don't want what they have. I don't care how rich they are. I don't care how healthy their bodies are, or how small of a dress they can fit in. I don't want that life. I don't want what they have. I'm not envious of them. Then he goes on to a self-reflection where he kind of turns away from them and he begins to investigate something about himself. I don't want what they have. And now he turns to his own heart and he says, Then I realized that my heart was bitter. And I was all torn up inside. The problem here is me. It's not them. Right? Sometimes when life goes wrong, we start looking at everyone else and we start comparing with everyone else. And we have this bad picture of what their life looks like. Actually, this is kind of a phenomenon. I don't know if it's a phenomenon because we understand it, but there's this problem that's going on within social media that people only take pictures of the best things going on in their life. So the more people look at it, the more depressed they get. Because <laughs> they're looking and thinking, everyone else says their life is so amazing, and they're always eating delicious, amazing food, and they're all, every day they're just having fun with everyone, and it's just 
social and amazing, and I'm looking at myself, and I'm sitting on my couch wondering, what am I doing? (laughs) But it kind of causes you to think, well, look at all what they're doing, and you get caught up in there, but you don't understand the whole picture. And the author is realizing that. He's like, yeah, yeah, see, when, when I talk about their health and their riches and the simplicity of their life, I don't get the whole problem of their life. But as he looks to his heart, he understands something. The real problem isn't this out here. It's my heart. I was discontent with my circumstances, and that drove me to become a bitter person. And bitter people find a problem in everything. Bitter people find a problem in everything. Right? 22. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. As you see me wandering around trying to figure out my life, and I'm all mad over these. I want what they have. I wish I had what they have. Now he's confessing to God. I must have looked like an idiot. I must have looked like a senseless animal to you. You see... um, I'm all mad at my problems. But the problem is in my heart. I'm just bitter. That's where I'm at. Now he shifts his heart and he turns his gaze to what really matters. Picking up in verse 23, he says, Yet I still belong to you. The senseless animal I am, I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Lead me to a glorious, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I have in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is it to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. Um, think about this story and relate to this story. Think and relate to this story. You look at people who live in selfishness and pride, right? and it's easy to envision, especially when, you're, when we're young. It's easy to envision, or it's easy to wish we had what they had. It's easy to long for what they have. It looks easy. They have what they want. They get what they want. No worries, no problems, lots of pleasure. Don't have any rules to follow. Don't have a God to pray to. Don't have anything. I don't, I'm just freestyling it in life. And then you, and, and we wonder, why bother being righteous? Why bother following the rules? Why bother praying? Why bother reading our Bibles? Why bother being a Christian? Why bother going to church? Why bother being committed to Jesus when my life is in ruins? What do I have to show for it? How does my life look so much better because I, I believe in Jesus and they don't? And we can ask that question, is my faith invaded? Did I place my hope in the wrong thing? And the author comes to this conclusion where he says, truly, this is the thing that I want to shift to talk about, where he says, truly, you put them on a slippery path and you send them sliding over the cliff of destruction and in an instant, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. Uh, what is he talking about here? He is a talking about the effect of misplaced hope. 
what happens when someone makes drugs, money, sex, whatever, any pleasure, simple pleasure, anything in this world, even family, what happens when someone worships the wrong thing? When they take any kind of abuse or any kind of, a, of an addiction or any kind of an idol that we could have, and we try to make it a solution to life's problems. What happens? Dissatisfaction. Right? Um, this is hard for some parents. But when you worship your kids, you're eventually going to be dissatisfied. When you worship your spouse, eventually you're going to be dissatisfied. Right? It's easy to talk about some other things. It's like safer to talk about in the church, like money, sex, drugs, right? Because those we can obviously see, yeah, that leads to dissatisfaction. But any idol, anything we choose to worship that is not God, the result is going to be dissatisfaction. Why? Because you were never made to be fulfilled by those things. You were never made, you were never designed to be satisfied by those things. Right? Soda... Isn't designed to satisfy thirst the way water does. So you could be dehydrated and you can drink a bunch of soda and you're just going to result in a deeper thirst. Right? There's the way in which our soul longs for something. And nothing in this world will fill that except God Himself. You will never find real satisfaction until you live out the purpose you were designed to live. Quenching your soul with a thing that it was designed to be filled with. God gives them what they want. That's, that's the picture here. Uh, and I think it's, you see it. You see pictures of it throughout, throughout Scripture. Throughout Scripture, you see this picture that God gives them what they want. They want a life of rebellion. They want a life of misplaced hopes. They want a life where they chase after things, after abuses. After idols, they want a life running from God. He gives them exactly what they want. A life of eternity. And an eternity of worshiping all the wrong things. An eternity without God. I mean, that's, that's often a picture of hell. It is a simply an eternity without God. An eternity without all that's good with the source of all love, with the source of all hope, with the source of all joy. Right, that's, that's a picture of hell. You choose to deny God here. You choose to deny God for all eternity. You choose to worship yourself here. You choose to worship yourself for all eternity. And that's misplaced hope. It's an eternity of being unsatisfied, anger, bitty, hopeless, and resentful. While you worship the wrong thing. Uh, Lewis uh, describes, in, in, in one place, he describes hell as being locked, that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. And I think there's truth and not truth to that, right? So if you take that as it's like, oh, well, the people in hell can unlock the gates at any point in time. Well, that's, that's not an accurate picture of hell. And I don't think that's what Lewis was really getting at. I think what he's really trying to say is that the people in hell, right, they're there, by, but, but they are there because they have chosen to run from God. And even in eternity, they're bitterly angry about that. And they're bitter and angry, uh, not just because they wish they would have done something different. I think they're still bitter and angry at God. 
right? Because, but they're still content, well, not content, very discontent, worshiping the wrong thing. That is the destiny of those who worship idols who run from God. It's a self-inflicted misery, continuous rebellion against God, the source of all love, joy, and hope. It will be a life of dissatisfaction. And that destiny begins here. Sin is attractive. A simple life can be attractive. A life without God can be attractive. Just the Instagram version of it, at least. And that's what the author of Psalms says. That's what the author of the psalm is going out. I don't want that. I don't want that for myself. I don't want that kind of a life. I don't want to spend my life worshiping the wrong things. I want to spend my life worshiping the right thing. The one thing that matters. I don't want to spend my life chasing the wrong things. And that's when he shifts his prayer. This last final shift that he makes at the end of that prayer when he says, I want you, God. I want you, God. I just want to read that part again. It says, yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to the glorious destiny. Whom have I have in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My, my health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good is it to be near God? I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. Do you feel the spirit of this psalm? Do you see it? I don't want anything else but you. Verse 25, I think, is like the the, the thesis. It's the heart of this psalm. I think it's on the screen. Yes, it is. Um, So this is where I said that. I said there's going to be a a verse that I want to pull to uh, in ESV. Because translations uh, talk about it very differently. So in NLT, it says, there's nothing I desire uh, more than you. There's nothing I desire more than you. And then the English Standard Version, ESV, it says, there's nothing I desire besides you. One is comparative, and one is absolute. Right? One is comparative and saying, well, there's all these other things that I love. All these other things that I want. I would like a nicer car, a bigger house, whatever. Can list all the things that we might want in the world. But out of all of them, God is just the one on the top. I just want God more than everything else, more than everything else that I want. Right? Um, that's the way the NLT reads, but the ESV says it a little differently. It says, There's nothing I desire besides you. It's a little different wording. <laughs> is saying, if it isn't you, I don't want it. If it isn't what you want from me, I don't want it. There's nothing in life that I want besides you. The only thing I want, the other way to say that, is that the only thing I want in this life is you. And so I think that you, you, you could take this and understand, what is the author saying? He's talking about, if it isn't your plan, if it isn't your gift, if it isn't your discipline or your grace, if it isn't your love, your acceptance, if it isn't what you have envisioned for my life, I don't want it. It's the only thing in life that I want. You are the only thing in life that I want. If it isn't something you have for me, then I get it out of my life. Um, that, that is more accurate to the Hebrew language. 
It's really kind of, the envision of it is that it's very exclusive. It's like, the only thing I want is God. That's it. It's not comparative. Ah, oh, there's things I like and I just happen to want God the most. All I want is you, God. Um, I, I asked this question in the beginning and I want to re-ask it for us right now. What do you really want this morning? What are you really here for this morning? What do you really want in life? You spend your days, six days, seven days a week, what, do you, what are you chasing after? Whose vision for your life are you chasing after? Do you really, really want God? Not just because he's going to give you something. Right? We, don't, we don't want to go to God to get something from God. We want to go to get God. Right? You, you know what in the dating world we call that? Being a gold digger. <laughs> When, you go, when you're looking for something that that person has to offer you, not the person itself, we don't want to be a gold digger in our spiritual life. Are you being a gold digger with God? Honestly. Do you come to God for the right reasons? Or is there an idol in your heart? Is there something there that you, a misplaced want, a misplaced longing or desire that you're seeking after? Some kind of fame, some kind of position, money, security, sex, success, sex, simple pleasures, sinful pleasures, whatever. Anything that we choose to worship, anything that we put above God, is an idol. There is a promise in Scripture. It's communicated throughout Scripture. And the promise is this. The promise of Scripture is this. The most satisfying, hope-filled, joyful, Love-giving thing we can pursue in this life is God. And we obtain that through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Right? That is the secret to real love and joy and satisfaction. One that does not lead to... um, Destruction, one that does not lead to deeper longing, one that does not lead to emptiness or brokenness, but one that leads to a good life. Right? That, that is the promise of Scripture for us. Is there anything in your life right now that you want that isn't from God? Are there changes you want? Maybe there's things you're longing for. You're looking for changes, next steps. And you don't really care how you get those. You just see that God is a means to an end, maybe. It comes from God or not, it's fine. You just want them. Whatever you want in life. Is God the reason for that? Is he at the center of that? you just have solutions to your problems or are you looking for God's solutions to your problems? To seek God means that we seek him and nothing else. And you might think that's a little unfair that God gets to stipulate that, but he is God, right? And he gets to stipulate that. That if you're going to seek him, you only get to seek him. No agenda, no spins or twists. I want you, God. 
So let us say in the words of the psalm, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I'm going to invite the band to back up. I'll be praying here in a minute, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pray, but I'm going to play. Uh, the band's going to come, but they're going to play a few songs. And during that time, I want you to really worship God. Reinvent that idea for a second. <laughs> really worship God. Let him seek your heart. Let him reveal whatever maybe is a misplaced hope you have right now. Maybe let him reveal what idols you have, the things you're distracting, the places you've maybe wandered. Let him show you what's off in your life. What are you chasing that isn't him? And then I beg you, I ask you, I beg you, surrender to him. Surrender to him. And when you are ready to say, and I mean honestly say, like you're not just saying it because I'm telling you to say it, and you're not just saying it because you want to get it over with, but I mean when you are ready to say and honestly say that there's nothing I want other than you, I ask that you pray that this morning. Let God fix that problem in your heart right now. There's nothing that I want more than you. Take this time. Seek God. Join me in prayer. Father God, I I thank you, Lord, for the ways you've shifted my heart and moved my heart and convicted and stirred me. And Father, I ask that it isn't my words that are heard, but your heart, your word, your wisdom, your challenge. That whether we are immature in our faith or whether we are titans in our faith, God, I ask that this morning you convict us, you challenge us, you shape the way we think about our wants so that it becomes more and more clear that you are the purest, you are the best thing for us to long for. God, prepare our hearts as we think through our, our, our wants so that we might realize, just as this, the author of this psalm realized, that there is nothing we want that isn't you. That you are the only thing we want. Work in our hearts, God. Work in our heads. Interrupt our plans. Interrupt our, our, our agendas. Interrupt anything that isn't you. We pray these things in your wonderful son's name. Amen.